Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the Mentor Project Podcast, a place where you will learn, discover new ideas, be entertained, inspired, and even mentored. Our shows explore a wide range of subjects, including science, technology, business, society and culture, art and entertainment, and life. If you would like to learn more about the Mentor Project, please go to www.mentorproject.org. We hope you'll enjoy the show. Okay, Marco, how are you? You know, it feels like it's Mentor Project Friday. So Isn't welcome. it always Mentor Project something? Mentor Project something, right? So here we are doing another episode of the Mentor Project podcast. This is so much fun. And we have a great guest, another one of our brilliant mentors, Valerie Friedland. And Valerie is so interesting. I'm, I'm excited for the listeners to learn about her work. Um, and I know, Marco, you've, you've, you know a little bit about her work, but it's, this is going to be really a lot of fun today. You know, what, what she does, I'm going to say it's, it's fascinating. And the way that she brings it to, to the public, it's usually I have a lot of fun. I think we've done a couple of podcasts, so this is going to be, I'm sure as fun, even if we're focusing more on the mentor project, but like literally, dude, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we'll have to explain the literally dude uh, comment in a moment. But Valerie, welcome to the Mentor Project podcast. Thank you. And of course, I'm in great company of brilliant mentor. So I'm happy to be here and hang out with you guys a little bit. So great. So let's start with, of course, the obvious question that we always ask our mentors. How did you get involved with the Mentor Project? How did you first you know, learn about it? That's a really good question. And it feels like it's been a long time. And I'm trying to figure out how exactly I made the connection. But Debbie and I were connected through a mutual acquaintance. Uh, I believe it was a friend of ours that we had both gone to a conference with. And um, we just started talking about potential collaboration and Debbie invited me to come on with the mentor project. And that was really in the early days of the mentor project was, I think there were maybe 20, 25 mentors at that time. And it sounded like a great part of the types of things I did anyway. I am a professor. So mentoring students is really part of my job. And it's really part of the job I enjoy the most. I have long lasting relationships with many of the students I've had in my classes that I follow for years and we see them and I go to their weddings and uh, we keep up on social media and I really enjoy that part. And so if I can make a difference in anybody's life or explain things that they have questions about, it sounded like a no brainer to me to join up. That's great. So why don't you explain, we'll talk a little bit more about the mentoring that you've done for the Mentor Project, but now why don't you explain to our listeners and viewers a little bit about your work, because your work is very different, you know, and uh, so, yeah. Well, I think one of the neat things about the Mentor Project is it brings a lot of fields to the forefront that a lot of kids probably never thought about. 
I'm a sociolinguist and I know I never heard of a sociolinguist until I got to college. And I just happened to take a linguistics course as part of my major, which was a language major. And I thought, wow, where has this been my whole life? Because it's such a really fascinating way to look at language. It's the science of language. And we look at language historically, we look at patterns in language, we do experimental research with language. And my special interest as a linguist is studying the social factors and social triggers that interact and engage with language every day and help shape it over time. So it's something that's really interesting and useful. And of course, we all ask those questions about language, like why do men all say this? Why do women all say that? That's a big one, gender differences, but also things like why do kids say like all the time? Or what's up with Riz? What does Riz mean? We have questions about language all the time, and kids are the hotbed of language innovation. And they don't understand how valuable the work they're doing is, because most of the time we tell them they're not doing valuable work when they're creating language, when they're moving language forward, when they're helping to, to push its evolution forward. We tell them they're saying things that are slang or obscene or bad or bad grammar without recognizing the role that they play in the history of language to where we are speaking today from Beowulf. So I, I think this was a perfect opportunity to help validate what kids do and say and help them understand it from a scientific point of view. So, you know, if they think what a noun is, for example, a lot of times I've gone into schools and talked about parts of speech. If they think what's a noun, person, place, or thing. Well, then is believing a person, place, or thing? I mean, it's an idea. It's a concept. I mean, it's, you can see how it's not really classically in those categories. And actually, parts of speech are something that are basically determined by where they occur in a sentence. So a noun is anything that fits in a slot that a noun goes into. And that's sort of how we cognitively think about it. But what if instead of learning these you know, ideas like a noun is this and a, a verb is this based on just meaning, which is often not a very good way to determine parts of speech. What if we teach kids to look at the structure of language, which then will serve them well, no matter what they experience in terms of recognizing a noun. So then they'll always know what a noun is because it has the distributional properties of a noun, because it has the morphological endings of the noun, because it's functioning like a noun. And that way they can always get it right. So I think it gives them the tools and it's really fun for me. I love telling kids that they have been listening to their teachers tell them lies all these years. And I don't mean it, obviously the teacher and I have a good laugh, but what I mean it to, is sort of get them excited about is we're going to do something really different because you've never thought of language this way. So that's sort of what I do. And I just study language scientifically and I try to share that knowledge with the kids. You know, what, what is interesting is a, it's a two-way thing. Like we always talk about the mentor, mentoring and we mentor, but we also get mentored by the mentee. We do parallel mentoring. And when we look at these this things that happen, I, I feel like there is a, a connection with what you just said about, you know, this is going to happen no matter what, <laughs> right? Right. We can understand the rules and see why it happens. And it also make me think why some people say, if you want to be creative in music, in painting, in art, first you should be understanding the basic, the rules, and then with that in mind, you can create your own rule and break the rules. So it's, I think it's really, there's a big lesson here, which I think as a mentor, you want to encourage that. You want to encourage Absolutely. that creative thinking, but also like it's not just going random, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> It's not at all random, right? That's, I think, the beauty of it. It's incredibly rule-governed and, and principled and patterned. 
And people, you know, for example, uh, kids that say like all the time, I have a friend that's a middle grade teacher and she said, oh my God, that's the worst habit they have. And I said, no, it's the best habit they have. You just need to have them understand where they're using it. And, um, you know, obviously overuse is an issue, but that's a little different than whether it has a purpose. But if we look at how they pattern, they're actually patterning for very specific purposes. Linguistically, they either are approximators, sentential adverbials, or quotative verbs. So they're very specific. And if you teach a child, look, let's examine your speech and let's understand what this like is doing. I'm actually teaching them how to analyze language. So they're learning something larger while they're learning something fun. And that's really my goal. And I love it. I have so much fun. One of my favorite groups to teach is about the middle school, early high school level, because it's so revolutionary to them to have someone that understands their language. I don't speak it well, <laughs> but I understand it. And they have fun learning about the things they do. And they've been taught their whole life that it's bad. And it's bad grammar, it's bad English. But when they start to understand it as a principled rule governed thing, it gives them a lot of them say, well, I'm going to tell my mom that I can say like anytime I want. <laughs> That's great. I love that because what you do, what you did, and I, I've listened to you talk about this stuff and it's so, I'm, I always learn. I feel like I'm getting mentored today in this podcast. So, cause I always learn something about language and it's fascinating because like you said, the teacher was complaining about the, what you're like, no, that's a great thing. So what are some, I mean, cause that's a myth that you broke for the teacher, right? That like mm -hmm. is not a bad thing always and use it and learn why teach them why they're actually using it. What's some of the other fun myths that you've broken along the way, either through the mentor project or, or through your recent book tour? Uh, well, one really, really funny thing, I think, especially for kids to learn is that the dude, the word that they use all the time has a history that they would never use it if they knew its history. So if you go back about a century in the late 1880s, um, we find that dude was a term that was used only in mockery or to ridicule or insult somebody. And it was really turn of the century gossip if someone was a dude, because they were basically a self-absorbed, wealthy, self-affected dandy with an ostentatious regard for their clothes. So they usually had very specific kind of effeminate ways of dressing. And mainly it was men. There were dudettes, but particularly dudes were men. And they were always from wealthier families and they served no recompense for their living, which is what a article in 1884 claimed about dudes. And people were very upset if they got called a dude. In fact, there were several reports in newspapers at the time of duels that were inspired by being called a dude. So, you know, when my son was a, about a middle schooler and he used to call me dude all the time, I'm like, you realize you're calling me an effeminate dandy. And somehow that just ruined the allure for him. So he stopped calling me dude. But I love that word because it's something that a lot of kids can relate to and they use it and they think it's like, I'm this, I'm this chill, cool, non-conforming dude. And I'm actually, nope, not really. If you go back in time, here's what the dude meant. And it was something completely different. And it's not until the 1930s with the Zoot Suit riots that it actually became cool and nonconformist because a lot of Zoot Suiters called each other dude to kind of stand out for their clothes and the statement they were making culturally. And that's when it got picked up by these subcultures and became cool. Oscar Wilde come to mind. He is actually taught in poetry at the time. And there's a number. If you want to Google the dude poetry, you'll find a lot of poems from the 1880s that ridicule either the cowboy sense of the dude, which was prevalent in the West, or the dandy sense of the dude. And Oscar Wilde in one of those poems is, is called the imported dude. 
because he was exactly the model. It was primarily men that were associated with the aesthetics movement, the art for art's sake and beauty for beauty's yeah. sake that were very superficial and, and tended not to want to work and they didn't do traditional masculine things. And so it was really a statement about these norms of masculinity being challenged at the time. And if you think about what dude means today, it's really, and, and in its heyday, it's really about these norms of masculinity being redefined. So in both centuries, it's about masculine behavior and expectations for masculine masculine behavior and breaking those expectations, but how it was done was completely different. So one era, we like it one era, we don't. You know, it's so interesting because your work with language and um, just, and you see the and, uh, which I want you to talk a little bit about the and, uh, um, um, is <laughs> what, what you're doing, especially with kids, adults too. But when you take a word like that and you say, do you know where that comes from? There's so much that you're teaching in there. You're getting that. They don't even realize that they're learning about history, about culture, about the differences in time and the importance of understanding history. So it's really wonderful. Now you, you know, Valerie, you um, mentioned before you do, you are a college professor. You do a lot of teaching. We've talked Marco and I on this podcast before about the differences between mentoring and teaching and educating. What for you is the difference when you're in the hat strictly of like mentor I know that there's a lot of overlap, but could you talk about that? Plus, we'll throw in, we have to have you talk about the uhs and the ums and all of that, because it's fun to hear about. Sure. I do think there's a lot of overlap, but I, I think there is a fundamental difference. When you're teaching, the audience is less involved because you have content, and your content is what drives the conversation. Your content is what drives that interaction. Um, and a lot of times people ask questions, but it's really about the structure you put on it. And so it's not mentorship in the sense that you're not building personal development of the students in the way that they may find most beneficial. They're trying to get a grade and they want to do well in the final. And that's what's motivating their interest in that topic. And hopefully also just general interest as well. But when I'm mentoring students, it's often in a position where I'm helping them figure out personal growth or um, life trajectory questions helping them figure out where do I want to go to grad school? What kind of jobs will this work? How can I present myself? A lot of times I do a lot of reading of students' um, essays or applications for graduate school, or I take questions about things that they're curious about. So when I'm mentoring, I'm much more open and flexible in the types of things we can discuss. But when I'm teaching, we have a curriculum and I need to follow that curriculum so that we can make those learning goals, those learning outcomes that are really important at a at, at a school level. So I think there's a personal element to it in the mentoring that's much more student or uh, mentee driven and much more developed around their personal goals and how you can help them achieve those. So it's really driven by the mentee. In teaching, it's really driven by the professor. Yeah, we, we mentioned another conversation with other mentors that, and it was kind of my suggestion too, it's more of a one-on-one -on -one kind of like more more personal, more psychological than, than that structure, education, curriculum that you have to follow. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think some people can establish that one-on-one -on -one relationship with an audience, but it takes some kind of skills, and I don't know how truth is in the end. 
I mean, I think you can do it to a different degree. I'm not sure it's mentorship in the same way that we tend to think of that word. I have given a lot of talks at businesses, for example, or to groups that have me there to solve certain issues that they have in communication or to address certain themes that they think are relevant for the population that they have. So for example, I have given a lot of talks to groups that have women as part of their professional set, but maybe feel like those women are not heard in that context. So I talk to those groups about women in, in business, or I've also talked to legal groups because I do some consulting with law firms and with language of statutes and, you know, expert witness type things. So in that sense, I'm helping a larger group understand how my knowledge background and my field can be helpful in their goal setting and their goal achievement. So in some sense, I think that's similar to mentorship, but you're right. It doesn't have that same relationship where I'm individually helping a person. I like what you said earlier about what's driving the material, that in your role as professor and teacher, it's the curriculum, it's the things that you, there's a lot of, I teach also, there's a lot of requirements that we have to teach even if we don't want to because it's, there, there's lots of stipulations. Um, and, and that is driving it. But in the mentoring relationship, it's a lot more about what the mentee wants and what the mentee is looking for. Not that they're going to tell us what, but it's more about what they want to learn and what the purpose is. So yeah, I liked the way you talked about who's driving and what's driving the actual material. So that was a good, um, talk about the ums. There we go. So <laughs> I just did it right there. So tell, 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 speak a little bit about those words that we hear ourselves, fillers, that we hear ourselves do and we want to go, ah. Yeah. It's so funny because I, I have what I call the like um effect on people, which means that whenever they talk to me, they start using likes and ums and noticing every single time they do. When, if we didn't talk about it, if it wasn't part of our conversation, I don't think people would be as aware of it. And it's not that they don't use them. It's just that once you mention an um, you hear every um thereafter. But ums are what linguists call fill pauses. So they're a little different than things such as like or well or so or you know that are, are discourse markers and sometimes called filler words. But those are substantively different in function than an um or uh, which are fairly automatic cognitive processing flags that come up when we're doing pretty hard cognitive retrieval. And what we find when we study them, and it's really, really fascinating um, given our disdain for them, is that they tend to signal when speakers are doing harder work than average. So when they're coming up with difficult words, less common words, more abstraction, when they're building very uh, complex embedded sentences, those are the times that we see more than us occur in speech compared to when they're not doing those things. So one great experiment, they had people describe a picture. And so the first time they described it, they used lots of ums and us because that was the first time they they had that picture and they hadn't activated those neural networks yet. But the second time, about an hour later, they had them describe it. It was the same picture. They already had activated those neural networks and therefore were quicker and used less um and us in describing it. That didn't mean they were more eloquent about it. That simply mean they were more practiced with it and that the level of cognitive activation required to achieve that description was less. And therefore it reduced the things that were basically cognitive flags. So, Yes, that's great. Okay, so we're thinking hard, but there are actually some really substantial benefits to us and ums from a listener perspective that we totally discount 
when we say they're just distracting and annoying, because one of the things we found when we look at the time lapse after you say an um or uh, is that they also help a listener understand that a speaker is not done with their turn. Because if you just pause in the middle of a sentence, a lot of times speaker listeners don't know what to do with that. And they either get uncomfortable or they feel a little, you know, like, huh, or because they think you might be done with your turn. It leaves it, it's some indeterminacy on the part of the listener. But if you say, uh, or, um, it signals to a listener, I'm going to continue with my turn. It's a momentary pause while I'm thinking. The benefit of, uh, versus, um, is an, uh, seems to indicate a short delay, whereas um indicates a longer delay. When we actually study the pause length after the uh or the um, so how long a speaker takes to come back to their train of conversation, uhs are followed by shorter delays than ums, which indicates they're actually being used in a purposeful way to indicate information to the listener. And then because they seem to work as a cognitive flag to a listener saying, look, whatever I'm about to say is more difficult, more abstract, or more complex than what I would say otherwise, that seems to work as a flag to a listener that they need to devote more neural networks to it, more neural resources. And they seem to have better information processing and better recall when an um or a preceded a word in conversation than when it didn't. So they're pretty fascinating in their benefits. Now, that doesn't mean they're not distracting if someone overuses them. And it doesn't mean we like them, but it certainly means that they're not useless like we tend to think of them. It makes me think about the old computers with a sh with a very low memory that has to make that noise as it's processing things, and you know it's working, right? right and, exactly. And then if it, that noise in the background, the hard drive stop, you're like, uh oh, is it broken? Something yes, is not working. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, See, uh, now now you put it in my head. I've worked so I know, hard. Can, you're going to hear every I've worked um so that hard. follows. <laughs> Well, I, I give an advice here. I'm sure Susan can do the same. And you, if anybody has done enough podcasts and they want to listen to themselves, there's no better way to work on your issues in communication than just listen to yourself in the first time. It's just going to suck <laughs> big yes, time, yes. right? Yes. But as you said, yeah. in, a, in a regular conversation, it's, it's very, very helpful. I, I totally agree yes, with and we don't See, notice totally. It. I totally totally you totally agree. and you don't notice it. What we find with listeners is in context where you listen back to yourself, you notice everything. But in context and conversation, speakers are very good at filtering out all those things. And in fact, I think people are shocked when they listen to conversations at how little they control for those factors. And often they don't even finish words and sentences. They are broken off. They start and stop. And you listen. You think, God, how did anybody understand this conversation? But in the moment, our processing is amazing and we're able to do it and, and filter out all those false starts and restarts and repetitions and ums and uhs. So, you know, I, relax. I think that's the I message. I always feel better after I speak with or listen to Valerie talking about this, <laughs> always. And being an original Brooklynite and having a Brooklyn accent and one of her talks she talked about with the speech where it came from, I was like, okay. I'm no longer embarrassed. I am now proud. So that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yes. You know what? I want to take a, a moment to associate more your conversation, the um, you know, mentoring and teaching to the new generation, accepting what they bring new to the table. And I'm probably connecting to conversation we already had, but I, I learn from those. So I'm going to bring it back up and maybe you can underline that which is the fact that 
when you look at things from a sociological perspective and you see these changes, like every year there is new words. I remember one episode we had was about the new the new world yes, when you yes, guys all get together and and you look back and of course few the last year were full of pandemic related uh, words and but in general we need to be open to the fact that society change there are new things technology which is my field often change so we incorporate all of this so maybe an explanation of how is important that actually this change happened, that we have to put new things in the dictionary and maybe some become archaic. And I think it's still important to know that, the origin of that word, but. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times we also focus on vocabulary and, and language has a lot of underlying changes that happen in our speech without us noticing it. Because we notice vocabulary, because that's part of our conscious awareness, we flag that all the time, especially when it's with speaker groups that are disfavored in society, which is where a lot of times slang comes from. It comes from groups like adolescents that have sort of a bad rap uh, among most of us that have had teenagers particularly. <laughs> but it also comes from groups like African-American speaker groups or um, Latino groups, things that tend to be less disfavored socially. And therefore, we don't like those features because somehow they're associated with these disfavored social groups. And somehow that makes them bad or wrong English. But I think what we also don't notice is all these tiny little changes that a lot of these speaker groups introduce in our language at a much more substantive level, because a word is here or there, right? Sometimes they stick around, sometimes they don't. They're pretty ephemeral. But other facets of our language, the morphosyntax, the sound system, those are much more impactful over the course of language over time than whether I say yeet or riz, which may or may not stick around and become part of more mainstream culture. So for example, think about how you say passives today. Do you say I was fired or I got fired? This is a rise of a new form of passive verb, the got passive. Um, and most people use it without even realizing it. And the reasons it's come up is probably because it's, first of all, maybe a little less formal, but primarily it seems to indicate that the agent, uh, I mean, sorry, the subject of the verb had the action happen suddenly or that it was a more negative effect on the, the person to whom the action occurred rather than just a was passive. So it actually gives a finer nuanced meaning. And that's really why these things evolve, because we have experiences or um, intentions that we need to encode. So it's not simply that we have a new device that we need to give a name to, and that does inspire a lot of linguistic ingenuity. But it's also that we have different things we need to do with language, and the language we have doesn't serve those roles. So like, for example, as a quotative has come up, not just because, you know, we have vacuous, empty-headed young women. That's absolutely wrong. But because of what changes in our culture in terms of telling stories and conveying emotions and thoughts have come in the last 50 years. So in previous decades, up to about the 1950s and 60s, when we told stories or we were laying events, it was simply a verbatim recounting of events. Uh, here's a sequential process that, you know, happened. But 
in the last 50 years or so, we have a shift in narrative style where our own processing of events has become a really important part of what we are doing when we're telling stories. So think about the last time you told a story. You often set the the grounds or the, the sort of foreshadowing by saying, first, let me tell you a little bit about where I was and what I was doing. Or first, let me tell you the background. These other things that are important that we think to the story. And a lot of times our thought process while that story is being told is very important. So what we were thinking when it was happening or how we were processing the emotions. And that is a new thing. That's only about 50 years old, that narrative style. So if I'm telling you a story and I want to tell you what John said, but it wasn't actually what he said. It was what I was thinking he was saying. If I said, John said, holy shit. In, as part of the story. What that indicates to you by using the verb to say is that he verbatim said that. But if I say, John was like, holy shit, that could easily be what I think he was thinking or what he told me later he was thinking, not actually what he said. It's an emotional processing of the events. And so to be like arose to fit that need in our changing narrative style. That's a long story to say, basically, that we do these things because we have new things to describe, new experiences to encode, or new devices and new creations to name. And all of those things help keep our language rich and evolving rather than leading to its decay. And some of the listeners, and you both know that my background is in psychology, and language is so important when it comes to psychological concepts and therapeutic concepts, because if you don't have the words with which to use, then you can't express yourself. And the other thing I was thinking is the, that society, it's, it's the words that we have and how much language we have or words to describe something really reflects what the values are of that society. So for instance, and I know I'm, I'm putting two concepts together, but the first piece is look, when we ask people, how do you feel today? Or how are you? Or how do you feel? Right? Usually what do you get? Happy, sad. It is like, but you know how many words there are to describe it. And so the more we can make that language known, it allows someone to really hone in on exactly the differences between those feelings. And as you know, once you identify, once you're able to put a label on it, it can, it can be really therapeutic and really have positive things. The other piece is about, and, and I just wonder, Valerie, if you can talk a little bit about what, what do you want people to know? Like what's really, like when you, you're mentoring, let's say, or teaching, right? And it's not being directed by the curriculum because you know so much about language that I have, I did not know a lot of what you're telling us, um, you know, before we've had conversations. So what are some of the important things that you want to highlight or you would highlight, you know, for, for listeners? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the reasons I wrote this book was driven by the questions that people brought to my attention all the time. So either in classes, what students would say about their own speech. I just want to I just want to interrupt because you said one of the reasons why you wrote the book. I don't think that we mentioned the book, the actual full title. So why don't you talk a little bit or I think you have it behind you. Show the book. I and do you say yes, what the, yes. the title is. Yes. Yes. I have the book. I just wrote a book like literally, dude. <laughs> Arguing for the good in bad English. And it was really driven by the experience I had as both a professor with my students and also as a public speaker in um, context in which I would give public lectures. What I found that I would give lectures about the beauty of language, the evolution of language, the larger forces of language, sort of the linguistics part of what I do. 
but then students would come to me and say, you know, I am really self-conscious about the vocal fry. My, my grandfather tells me I, you know, sound like I'm gargling stones or, you know, something like that. Or my mom or my dad always comment on my grammar. I got so much of that from the students that they feel self-conscious about the way they speak. And these are kids that are in college, they're doing good work, uh, they're studying linguistics, which isn't something that, you know, your average everyday student picks. So it's a harder curriculum. It's a, a unique class. And I'd also get those same questions from adults at my public lectures, like, why do kids say like all the time? Or, ugh, why are women using vocal fright? So annoying. What I realized is we haven't done a very good job of communicating what drives language change, what drives speakers to adopt these forms that we tend to dislike nor have we done a good job of communicating why we have these reactions to it. What is it that drives these really strong tendencies to judge other people's speech habits in a way that's harmful to them and hurtful and painful? We feel like we're doing them a favor, but it's shocking to me the kinds of rudeness with which people respond to young people's language, uh, as if that somehow justifies your behavior because you don't like that they say like. Um, you dismiss them as a person. You dismiss them of ha having someone has ideas and thoughts that are valuable. So I really want people to read the book to understand that language has a really fascinating history, that all these forms that we dismiss as useless and vacuous are actually really fascinating from a historical per perspective. They're really fascinating from a scientific perspective. We've got great experimental research to support their use as something innovative and creative, and that it's really their association with speakers that are disfavored socially, that tends to give rise to our dislike and distrust of them. So I think those are really important messages that we have not gotten enough. I think that's an important message, like very important. It embraces, it, I think it helps people embrace diversity because we have a tendency to always see what is different from us as the enemy. Something like, oh, you're not part of my group. You're, you don't speak my That's dialect. Right. You don't speak my, you don't understand my slang. And I think sometimes kids, they do it on purpose, right? Like they want to have their own language Absolutely. To, to create their own tribe, let's say. But that's, in my opinion, very important part of growing up and developing. And we need that community, but we also need to not go and criticize the other because everybody wants to have his own community. Absolutely. So yes. the big lesson here is embrace diversity, maybe learn about that language. And I think that's an important uh, part and topic for mentorship that we, we need to do. It's yeah. very yeah. about embracing. And, and I know you, you do a lot of that in the book. I was reading some excerpt in terms of, you know, women may use certain things more than others. You just mentioned minority groups may do that. So, again, not a book that we want to burn. Or <laughs> and I, I try to have fun with it because I think also language is fun. It's fun. There's so many facts about language that are mind blowing and silly. They're, the history of language is really silly. The way that people, when we watch, when we step back and watch people in history and how they've acted around language, we laugh. It's easy to laugh at. And then you think, well, actually, we're doing the same thing today. So it's really a lighthearted approach I take in the book for that reason, because it's so it's a joyous topic. And I'm so lucky to get to share it with everybody. And I do want to underscore what you said. And Marco, you alluded to this, too, is that 
we people can be so judgmental of other people based on language. And we miss so much then. And it is really important as mentors, as humans, to not just make those assumptions that just because somebody is either struggling with an accent or language, that they're not intelligent. And we've seen that over and over again. And I, I just want to underscore, because that's really important. Again, being from Brooklyn, that Brooklyn accent was always associated with being not intelligent. Absolutely. And my yeah. next book actually is about accents and it's about right. our, 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 the historical development of different speech forms and sort of our, how these ideas about what a type of talker you are, what a type of person you are based on your accent, where that stems from. Right. And what's valued in society, right? Yeah. So if certain yeah. groups are valued, then the way they speak which goes into code switching, which we can have a whole other podcast about with code switching, right? Yeah. Um, and I've seen that happen a lot. But um, both hey, of them. I, I come from Italy where we don't right. understand each other if we, <laughs> if we speak in dialect. I mean, we don't have a dialect in Florence, for example, but if somebody from Sicily speaks in dialect, I'm done. I mean, I need a dictionary, literally. <laughs> yeah. But. Right. But I want to ask you something to kind of wrap into the mentorship. And, and I'm wondering the value of teaching all of this and, again, teaching mentoring to the, the young generation, which, again, I go to inclusion, diversity, accepting, but also understanding our past to understand our future. I, I jokes about this thing often, actually, because even there are words, you probably can have a comment on this, like we still use horsepower to talk about cars or even rockets that go to the moon, how many horsepower that rocket has. And it goes back to the conversion into the, the, the steam engine. Right, but we're right. still using that. We still call the mobile phone or the smartphone. It's not even a phone anymore, right? So right. my point is, is there a time maybe apart from the jokes that that is too early in your opinion to talk about this to a kid? I mean, do we need to start with the basic rules and then break those rules, like I said at the beginning, or is it okay to just take it as... I think, you know, I think uh, kids are really ripe for that kind of information because what is unique about young children is they ask the questions adults fail to notice to ask. And what I mean by that is we get so accustomed to saying things. Horsepower is a great example that most people don't even think about the origin of that word. It doesn't even mean what it used to mean. It's become this totally different word that's bleached from its original meaning. Whereas a child would be the first to say, why is it called horsepower? Right. Where's so the horse? <laughs> I, I think it's a wonderful time to bring up the, the evolutionary spirit of language with them and to talk about why language is the way it is. I wish we taught linguistics in an elementary program, I think children would really love it. And I'm not talking about the social linguistic side of it, but just linguistics, because it helps children learn language by understanding the structure of language. And also in cases where you have non-native speakers, it really can help kids understand the differences between their language or dialect and the one they're learning if they understand the structure better. But a great example is when my son was doing spelling words in, I think, first grade, they'd have these lists every Friday that they had, would be tested on a Monday or something like that. Or maybe it was they got them on Monday for the test on Friday. 10 words or 15. And I dreaded that stupid list every week because it was so ridiculous to show a kid all these words spelled in wacky ways that have nothing to do with the way we pronounce them anymore. 
and say, yeah, learn it like that. And they want it to make sense. Children want to make sense of the world. So they're like, why is night spelled with a K and a GH? And how about all those weird words that have an EA? And then there's another one that has an EE. So like beat and beat, like the beat you eat. And then listening to a beat, where's that come from? Or meat and uh, meat, you know, you eat meat and then you meet. It's so confusing and kids had to learn that. And my son could not, he could not understand the EA and the EE difference. He got, got confused on that all the time. And so I told him and whether it helped him actually learn the words, I don't, I don't know, but it actually made a little difference to him in terms of understanding why it was there. I said, well, that is actually from a time in English when those words were pronounced differently. The EE and the EA were actually different. So it was more like met and mate. So one was met and the other one's mate, but those fell in together around 15, 1600 and just became meat and meat where they weren't even the vowel that either of them started with. They got raised to be an E vowel and they merged. So I did it in more child-friendly language, but I said, so actually in old English, you know, you would have said those differently. Isn't that cool? And this is actually a record so that we can know the secrets of our language a thousand years ago. And he thought that was pretty cool. Now, whether it helped him on a spelling test, I don't know, but at least it helped him understand and accept and enjoy this difference that seemed arbitrary and weird on the forefront. And then I told him about night. Well, in the olden days, knights were actually just boys. They weren't even knights. Um, and that we used to call them knights. And then there was a little, that GH was a sound that German had because we were a German speaking you know, group at the time. And it was knight. So I said that, and those are just ways that we can see our history through words. So he found those things fascinating because he was super into knights at the time. And so I was able to scaffold what he loved and enjoyed. And a lot of little kids love knights and princesses and things like that into understanding a little bit about the evolution of language and then make him not feel so bad about the fact that it was hard. It's yeah. hard to learn this because it doesn't have a meaning for us today. But absolutely, I think you can start very young. This is, I'm learning a lot. Marco, did you know any of that? I really did not know that at all. So I'm, I'm getting mentored. I'm learning. <laughs> this is amazing. Cause I too, sometimes I still, when I have to spell something, it's like, wait, how do you do this? Why am I spelling it this way versus that way? It's a and cruel it's, trick. It's, it is. Cause it's all about rote memory then because it's it is. nothing. And for, for, I don't, I'm not great with rote memory. I have to understand and have meaning. So mm -hmm. that's been a struggle of mine. And it's, it's, you, you do wait, what, what, why is it this way? And what? Yes. Look, yes, I, I started in advertising as a copywriter and I still enjoy doing copywriter. My best friend has always been the thesaurus. Right, synonymy yeah. yes. contrary in Italian, yes. and just see how many different way there is that word, but there is a slight little difference, and then maybe you go to look at the origin, and we are all made of stories. So the language, to be honest, is at the core of our society. So here's yes. a big thank you for yes. <laughs> for people like you that are all geeking geeking out about these things and. Yeah, I, I'm very fascinated. I hope that this conversation will be listened by parents, by other mentors, by kids and family, and really get fascinated by this. It's an excellent way to learn and to get a different perspective. But Susan, I'm going to use this word now. I know it's not the perspectives, this show, but you know, right. it, it, it gives you a different, different perspective. perspective. 
It Absolutely. Really does. Yeah. I was laughing, Marco, because when you said about the thesaurus, I'm thinking, is it now replaced with chat GPT? Oh it's God, like let's not like, go there. Let's, we I don't, don't have another hour. I know. I don't want to open it, but I just <laughs> I was tempted though to go use, there. Like, who's gonna uh, use a thesaurus anymore? You know? Well, so no. but that's a whole other podcast. Yes, that's that's a whole other podcast. Yes. So this has been great, Valerie. And I just want to say again, um, if you want to learn more about Valerie, you can go on the mentorproject.org. Um, and check her out and check out her book. And I think, I believe we have it there as well. And uh, yeah, this has been great. And I, I hope you'll come back again and we'll talk more about absolutely next time and, and mentoring and some of the findings that you are going to be experiencing as you, I know you're doing a lot more talks and um, mentoring on this. So great. This has been fascinating. It's really things that you don't often hear and think about. So thank you. Sure, absolutely. It's been fun to talk with you. I always like seeing your faces. Great. Uh, always fun. And for everybody listening, we have many other uh, coming episodes with other mentors. And if you want to learn more about the Mentor Project, there'll be links either under the video or under the podcast notes. Either you're enjoying it as an audio or looking at us, having fun, smiling. And uh, yeah, share, invite more people. We'd love to have more people sharing all the conversation that we have. So thank you very much. I'm gonna thank you. close this. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by The Mentor Project. If you enjoyed this segment, there are many ways to thank us. Please consider subscribing to our podcast, making a tax-deductible donation, or becoming directly involved. Subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.mentorproject.org to learn more. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.